Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. Mama, when you were growing up in Voyeen, what did you know about America? Did people talk about wanting to go to America? Was there buzz about it? And she looked at me and she said, She said, we didn't really talk about it very much. No one, no one really said much. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I'm Jessica Hankin. And today we continue our series called Return to the Stoop, in which we feature a memorable Stoop story and explore various fascinating questions with the storyteller. But before we get started, we want to thank our longtime Stoop uh, podcast sponsor, the Park School of Baltimore, which is a pre-K through grade 12 non-sectarian school located right outside Baltimore. So our, um, our storyteller that we are returning to this week is none other than Jennifer Mendelssohn, who's a journalist and genealogist based in Baltimore. And it is a real honor to have you. Uh, this is a story that you told um, at a show that we did in 2015, which feels like 10,000 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's, let's um, without further ado, let's listen to the story. So all this started because I was trying to make conversation. It was Memorial Day weekend of 2013, and my husband and I were taking his 95-year-old grandmother, Frida, home from a family function. What you need to know about Frida is that Frida is a Holocaust survivor. She comes from a teeny shtetl in Poland called Wojin, and she and her husband fled Poland when the Germans invaded in 1939, and they went to Russia. Now, the story of how they survived the war could certainly make its own stoop show, but we won't go there tonight. But what you need to understand to appreciate what's going to come is that Frida and her husband survived the war, but the rest of their family was not so fortunate. Um, It's almost incomprehensible the extent of the devastation that they endured. Frida lost not only her entire nuclear family, both of her parents were murdered, all six of her brothers and sisters were murdered, her only living grandparent was murdered, but she also lost, it was like a bomb went off. Everybody who stayed behind, 99.9% of them gone. Her aunts, her uncles, it was a large family in a small town. Her cousins, her second cousins. When I got to know her, in all seriousness, she was a person who had, to my understanding, two or three relatives, and obviously she treasured them greatly. Well, fast forward to that day in the car in 2013, and I asked what I thought was a very innocuous question. I had recently joined Ancestry.com, and I had become very interested in sort of learning all about my family's history. And my family, like I'm sure many of yours, is a family of all immigrants. Um, Everybody came from Eastern Europe, with a couple of exceptions, everybody came here. So I'd been spending all this time looking at ships manifests and naturalization papers, And it sort of got me thinking, and I had never asked her this question. So I said to her, Mama, when you were growing up in Voyeen, what did you know about America? Did people talk about wanting to go to America? Was there buzz about it? 
And she looked at me and she said, nah. <laughs> she said, we didn't really talk about it very much. No one, no one really said much. And then she throws this at me. You know, my mother had two older sisters who went to America before World War I. She was supposed to join them, but the war broke out and she was never able to go. Now, in the cartoon retelling of this story, this is the place at which my eyes bug horizontally out of my head. I was like, what? Your mother had two sisters who came to America? Like, and I remember I was like, flip, like, is this a cousin that I've met? And like, I'm thinking, no, I've known this woman for 14 years. I have never heard her mention that she had two aunts who came to America. And I'm like, well, what, what's their story? What, what happened to them? And she sort of sighed, and she said, you know, I really don't know. She said that her mother, whose name was Chaya Royza, somehow lost touch with her sisters. They came to America, and they lost contact. And when Frida got to America in 1958, she did the only thing she knew how to do to try to find them. She, she thought they lived in Chicago. And there was one guy from Boyin who was sort of the person after the war who knew what had happened to everybody. And he lived in Chicago, so she wrote him a letter. And she never heard back. And she later heard that he had died. And with it, she thought, her only chance of finding her aunt. So I said, Mama, you have to tell me everything you know about them. We're, we're going we're gonna to find out what happened to them. She said, this is what I know. Their names were Hania and Bella, Bela. They lived in Chicago, but Hania died of cholera there. And she said, I think one of them had a husband named Avram from a town called Lukov. And I thought to myself, if there is one thing I'm going to do in this lifetime, it is I am going to find out somehow what happened to these two women while well, we thought we knew what happened to one of them. To say I became obsessed with this search would be the understatement of the century. <laughs> the thought that Frida had a living relative anywhere was so sort of mind-boggling to me. I, I was like, I have to give her this gift. I, I, and I didn't really think they were out there, to be honest. She told me that Hania had died. I sort of thought Bela would be a dead end, too. Oh, and I forgot the important part. She didn't know their last names, which makes it a little tricky. So for two weeks, I sat at my computer. I ignored my children. There were cobwebs growing in my house. I didn't speak to my husband. I would sit at the computer at 2 o'clock in the morning. I remember at one point sort of on the trail, rushing a document and saying, like, it's a 95-year-old Holocaust survivor. We're trying to find her a relative. How fast can we rush it? Like, I just was obsessed. I just couldn't let it go. And every time I would rest, I'd be like, I got to find them. I got to find them. I got to find them. Well, we found them. At the end of two weeks of searching, we discovered Probably for the first and only time in her 95 years, Frida Pertman was wrong about something. <laughs> her Aunt Bela, well, she had told me that they had emigrated as married women and she didn't know their last name, so there was no way to find them. But she was wrong. Her aunt emigrated under her maiden name, and I was able to find her on a ship's manifest from 1911. And I followed the trail from there on Ancestry.com, 
on the Jewish genealogy website, which has this amazing listserv where people reached out to me and tried to help me piece together. Here's what we found. Hania and Bela did not go to Chicago. They went to Massachusetts to work in shoe factories. Hania did not die of cholera. She lived a long and happy life. She had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. One of her grandsons is a well-known American billionaire, we found out along the way. <laughs> and actually, she died in 1969 in Maryland, unbeknownst to Frida. But the most amazing thing that we learned at the end of two weeks, I was able to look this 95-year-old Holocaust survivor in the eye and tell her, Frida, you have three first cousins alive in the U.S., Three of Bela's daughters were still alive. They were in their 80s. One was about to turn 90. These women's mothers were sisters. They had no idea that Frida existed. She obviously had no idea that they existed. And so we had to introduce them. And you can't kind of Google how do you introduce a 95-year-old Holocaust survivor <laughs> to the first cousins that she never knew. And I have to say it was a little bit awkward because these women, though they were first cousins, their mothers were sisters, they were total strangers to one another. Frida's aunts, she'd never met them. They left Poland before she was born. And when they got to America, as a lot of immigrants did, they sort of closed the door on their Polish past. They hadn't told their daughters. Their daughters didn't even know the name of the town that they came from, much less family names or anything like that. We did get a photograph of Frida's aunt, and there was a stunning family resemblance. So it was like, okay, they're the right people. But I think Frida was looking for something in her heart that would let her know that these total strangers really were her family. And we finally got it. Because after the first two conversations where she met her new first cousins, we had the third and final one with her eldest cousin, Irene, who lives in Massachusetts. We were all in Frida's apartment, listening on speakerphone, and Irene was with her granddaughter at her apartment in Massachusetts. And the two women got on the phone, and you can imagine how strange this is. What, like, hello, how are you? What do you say? Well, they sort of exchanged little pleasantries, and Frida cut right to the chase. She said, Irene, did your mother ever talk about her sister, Haya Royza? Because that, of course, was Frida's mother. And I remember thinking, like my heart sank a little bit, because I just thought, she's not going to remember, she's not going to know, the aunt didn't, they didn't talk about Poland, it's clear, they sort of don't know anything about the family, but that's not what happened. Because much to the absolute shock of everybody in the room, what Irene said was, Chaya Royza? My name is Chaya Royza. That's what I was called till I was 10 years old. And then I said, enough of that. You call me Irene Rose. I want an American name. Chaya Royza. So I'll just close by saying that a few days after this happened, Frida looked at me and she said, now I know why I live so long. I live so long so I could see this day. Thank you. I just want to tell you that Frida is now 97, and she's sitting right back there. So before we dig into a discussion with Jennifer Mendelson, we want to thank 
Golden West, which is a Southwest vegan forward restaurant on the Avenue in Hamden. Um, go order food from them, their takeout window. And we want to thank Baltimore Magazine, um, which has been a great sponsor of the podcast. You can find them online and on newsstands. Uh, so check them out. Okay. So Jennifer. Oh, that story is so beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, what, what was it like listening to that five, five years on? I may, I may need a moment. Um, it's really, uh, I haven't listened to it in a long time, but um, it's really, really, um, it made me cry. It's, it's uh, most importantly, the reason that it's so difficult to hear now is that um, Frida passed away oh. just shy of her 100th birthday in 2017. Um, and I miss her. Um, but I also, it, it, it just sort of washes over me when I hear it now. Like it, I always say, and it sounds so hokey, but I really mean it. It's the most important thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I think it will, wow. it probably is the most important thing I ever will do. I just, I gave her a gift that, you know, was so precious to her and it was so special, not just for her, but for the entire family. Like the ripples of that discovery were, were just really meaningful on so many levels. So it, um, I, you know, it was a bittersweet. I cried because I miss her and I cried because I'm just so happy that I was able to find them. And would you say, I mean, you guys must have had an incredible bond after this because it seemed like you, because you say you started the, the story with saying you were making conversations. So I, are we to kind of infer that you were close, but maybe not as close as, as after this experience? Well, yes and no. I would, I, I, that wasn't meant to convey that we, we weren't close. We were always close. I adored her. Um, and, you know, I lost both of my, um, one of my grandmothers I never knew. She died before I was born. One died when I was like four years old. So when I started dating my husband and he had this little old Jewish grandmother who was then in her 80s, it was such a delight to have that presence back in my life again. So I wouldn't say we weren't close before, but it definitely bonded us in a way um, that was very, very special. And I felt very um, connected to her um, after, after doing it. Um, but it was just, you know, it, the, the fact that I was just trying to make conversation was just to contrast that I was not trying to change anybody's life when this began. It happened completely, <laughs> you know, literally we were driving her to her granddaughter's, um, her great granddaughter's high school graduation party. And we were just sitting in the car and I was just talking to her. Um, so it, it, I never could have predicted that everything, you know, the whole world with the tectonic plates would shift from this one little conversation. Right. I mean, so with this act, you, you know, you reconnected, you reunited um, Frida with her long lost relatives, which was you know, profound and amazing. And I, I'm so struck by you saying it's the, you know, most important thing you've ever done or possibly will do. Wow. But um, you also like created a new, I don't want to say career, avocation, um, obsession, but also like profession for yourself. Because at the time you you did this for Frida, you were early in your genealogy 
journey, shall we say? Is that right? We, we need to say early with a capital <laughs> A. Um, I, I have since gone back because now I give a lot of um, I talks and lectures around the country. And I have since gone back and actually looked at the timeline. I had been, I had been on Ancestry for two weeks when this began. Oh my gosh. And and so when it was all over, I had been doing genealogy for a month um, because it took me two weeks to find them. Um, So this was, I mean, exceedingly early. And at that point I had no idea that it would really become um, the focus of my professional life. Um, But it's interesting because it really is the Frida story that um, sort of opened up the whole world of genealogy to me because I was, well, first of all, I, I, I've since come to say that it's kind of funny. I mean, maybe it was meant to be, but, you know, my very first genealogical outing, I sort of accidentally hit the equivalent of, you know, a Grand Slam home run in the bottom of the ninth with two out. Like, <laughs> yeah, it just, yeah. you know, it, it just so happened that the very first thing I tried my hand at, I was you know, successful beyond my wildest dreams. So maybe I wouldn't have um, continued had that not happened. But then because it was such a remarkable discovery and because every time I told the story, it made people cry and people were just like, you know, it's it's so rare to make that kind of connection um, after the, the Holocaust, you know, so many years later. Um, I realized it was a really special story. Um, so I ended up writing about it, which is, you know, what I do. I've been a journalist for over two decades now. Um, and I wrote a piece about this experience and it ran in um, Tablet, the online Jewish magazine. And after, and so that was, um, this all happened um, uh, uh, Memorial Day weekend. Um, and then uh, the piece ran in August. And right after the piece came out, I got a phone call from um, the daughter of my parents' best friends, like childhood friends of theirs um, from the Bronx, who I'd known, I'd known her parents my entire life. And she said, I read the piece you wrote about Greg's grandmother, and you know, we're all so happy for you. Um, but it kind of got me thinking, I'm wondering if you can help us. And I was like, help you with what? And she said, well, I don't know if you know this, but my father was adopted. And I said, oh my God, no, I had no idea. And she said, yes, he was born um, to an unwed um, Jewish mother in Brooklyn in 1928. And she said, we have a little bit of information about his birth mother that was given to us by the adoption agency. And like, we tried and her son tried to like, see if he could, you know, zero in on the family um, and they couldn't do it. And she said, you seem to know how to do this kind of genealogical research. You know, do you think you could help us? And like flush with beginner's luck and, you know, having all of a month of genealogy experience. I was like, sure, I'll find your birth mother. Um, and, but I did, and, um, I just sort of, you know, I've, I've, as I said, I now give talks and I've sort of really spent a lot of time thinking about why I took to genealogy, um, sort of relatively late in my career, but I, I realized that it was, you know, I've had a long, um, career as a reporter and it just came very naturally to me to sort of. figure out these mysteries. And I approached these searches just as if I was, you know, I, when I was trying to find Frida's family, I was like, okay, I have to find 
two immigrants who came from Poland in, you know, the, the before World War I. I know a little bit of information about them, even though the information I had was wrong. They got to be out there. Like, and I just approached it like I was reporting a story. And I did the same thing with yeah. the search for his birth mom. And I just sort of used the demographic information that she gave me. And um, sure enough, uh, I found his birth mother and discovered that after she placed him for adoption, um, she she later married and she had two daughters. Um, so he had two half siblings and um, they got in contact and she immediately confirmed that she had heard something about her mother possibly having placed a child for adoption um, before uh, you know she was married. And then they did a DNA test and it confirmed it. And they were just awestruck. And what really got me was they, you know, they, they were like, this has completely changed our lives. And I just thought like, wow, this is a pretty cool power that I have. Like, I know how to do this thing that can bring so much joy um, to people's lives when they, you know, don't know how to find that missing person. Um, and there's only one missing person who will do and you need someone who knows how to find the right one. So I just sort of fell hook, line and sinker. And I, I started doing a lot of um, volunteer searches for people um, and started doing a ton of work, you know, on my own tree. And, um, and I was just about at the point where I had started um, making um, the next steps towards doing it professionally. And I had taken a couple clients um, and that's when I sort of unwittingly um, was thrust into the public eye as a genealogist. And ever since that happened, I now really focus almost exclusively on genealogy. So yeah, let's talk about what- Yeah, how are you thrust? <laughs> let's talk about yeah. that thrust. But actually, can, before we do that, I just want to say that last week on the podcast, or two weeks ago, we played the story of Katherine Robertson, which as I- I was in the audience for that one. Yeah, with her mother. And so she talked about her search to find her and same kind of thing. It's like, it's at once, like for her, it was at once like really mundane. Like she ended up finding her mother on Facebook. Mm -hmm. but magical like and it's this combination of a lot of like quite mundane types of research but it's mad it's at the end like it's magic you know I think I think that's so cool and I totally see how it grows out of journalism and reporting I really do so back tell us tell us about this thrust <laughs> tell us about this thrust um, the thrust. I'm gonna I'm gonna call it that from now on. So it was a very interesting thrust. It was um, once again much like the Frida story. Um, I wasn't really trying to start an international movement from my kitchen table, but I kind of did. Um, uh, where do we start with this one? Well, it it really started. I think. Um, well, the the thrust that I'm about to describe was really in the in um, early 2018. But I really need to back up to 2016 um, to to tell how it began. Um, well, I won't trust. I won't go day by day. I know we don't have that much time. Um, but, uh, but but just to, just to 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 help listeners understand uh, the the chronology. So, um, I found Frida's family in 2013. I told the story in 2015, and all in that time, I was um, 
just really obsessed with genealogy and spending a lot of time doing genealogy. Um, and I, I remember once my husband almost sort of angrily, um, I hope he doesn't yell at me for saying that, but I was like hunched over my computer and he was just like, what is all this? Like, where is all this going? Like, what are you doing? And I was like, I don't know. I just, I feel like there's something really important here. And I just, I know there's a big project and I don't know what it is. So, so then um, on Super Tuesday in 2016 um, is when things started to shift. So I am, you know, doing my genealogy thing and I'm, you know, mostly volunteer helping people and working on my own tree. And I thought independently of all of that, I was also becoming increasingly terrified about the changing political tide in the US. Um, you know, Trump had come on the scene and there was this sort of, um, pit in my stomach that made me very uncomfortable. And I, I also felt like as I come from a family, you know, both my husband's family, which is the story that you just heard, and my own family, unfortunately, was um, very touched by the Holocaust. I felt like I, it was almost like it hit some sort of internal like radar um, or, you know, it made my antennas go up. Um, there was something about him that made me feel very, very uncomfortable. And I, as a you know, journalist for many years, I had always stayed out of saying anything political. I, I wasn't allowed to, but no, I was no longer really working as a journalist and I could speak my mind. And I was sort of looking for a way to speak out about what I saw coming on the horizon that terrified me so. And, um, and I kind of didn't know what that was. And I remember at some point I like sent a couple messages around saying like, maybe I should be like a press secretary for a, for a politician, but that like really didn't feel right. But I just thought I need to be able to speak out about this. It's so important to me. And what ended up happening was on, on Super Tuesday, very coincidentally, I had um, connected with a third cousin who I hadn't previously known. I tracked her down on Facebook actually. And I sent her a message and I was all excited because she is descended. Um, my, my great grandfather and her great grandfather um, were brothers and um, I knew nothing about her branch of the family. And she sent me a, a long email. She was delighted to hear from me. And she sent me all this information about all of the children of this, uh, of my great grandfather's brother, who were my grandfather's first cousins, and um, also some of their children. So I hopped on my laptop and I started entering all of them into my tree. And literally, quite literally, as I was doing this, Super Tuesday, I'm watching like, CNN or MSNBC watching the returns and watching Trump, you know, to keep, if you remember, he like steamrolled everybody on Super Tuesday. And so I'm watching that on the TV. It was also right around the time that the first of those videos of a young black woman at a Trump rally sort of being, you know, bullied and verbally assaulted and pushed around was going viral. Um, and I'm putting all these people in my tree and every single one of them is coming up uh, in all sorts of Holocaust databases. Basically like every single member of that branch of the family except like one or two people were all murdered in the Holocaust. And I just, all of a sudden it like clicked and I thought, oh my God, like 
all this work that I have been doing and this time that I have been spending thinking about these issues of immigration and of you know, what happens when you have an autocratic leader and what can that lead to? And, you know, I, I, I had spent so much time thinking about immigrants and refugees. And, you know, I thought about like my grandfather's poor brother doomed in 1939, who wrote these heartbreaking letters, begging the family in New York to do whatever they could to get him out. And he literally used the Yiddish word for hell. He said, you have to get me out of this hell. Um, and he, he died and his wife died and their four daughters all died. They were murdered like animals. And so that is a very long preamble to say, like all of a sudden I was like, wait a second, all this information that I have about genealogy is valid and timely again. It's not this historical pocket. It's suddenly very, very, very relevant that these stories need to be told. So I started tweeting about like, you know, my grandfather's brother in the Holocaust. And I started, you know, like using examples of what happens when immigrants are not allowed, you know, entry into uh, when they're seeking refuge from autocratic leaders. And, um, and then it sort of morphed a little bit, um, actually after Trump was elected. And when all these, um, you know, pundits and politicians were out there, suddenly like hating on immigrants became like the great national pastime. And every time one of them would do it, I would just think like, you can't spend as much time as I do looking at American family trees, which except if they go completely back to Native Americans or enslaved people, all go back to people who got on boats from somewhere to come here. And I was like, who do these people think they are and where do they think they came from? And the first person that I really decided to like answer that question for was Steve King, who said, we can't build our civilization with other people's babies. And I was thinking, your family was somebody else's babies at some point. So I hopped on Ancestry and I did Steve King's tree and found, sure enough, his grandmother was one of those babies. She came through Ellis Island in 1894. And I screenshot the manifest and put it out on Twitter. And, you know, one thing led to another, led to another. And um, in January of 2018, I had a tweet about Dan Scavino, the White House social media director that went like crazy viral. And suddenly it was a thing and it had a hashtag and I called it resistance genealogy. And, you know, suddenly I was being asked to like be on TV and be on TV in Norway. And like, it was, it was just, it was insane. But, you know, the nice thing is, I had sort of been wondering what to do professionally with, with my genealogy and wondering how to use my voice to speak truth to power. And I never in a million years thought that those two things would come together, but they did like completely organically. And that is a very long answer to your question, I think. I will, I will have to say, so, so there are a couple of things about this. First, I, I, you know, going back to your husband, I would imagine that he was so, and not to play to like, old timey gender norms, but I think he was so damn proud of you because he's, I remember following both of you on social media around this time. And as you started to get more and more fame for lack of a better word, credibility, like he just clearly had your back and, and just was like, so in awe and proud of you. And I know personally, I was like, I'm so happy that one, I, you know, that this woman is on our side. <laughs> 
uh, and to you know that I that I that I get to say that I know her, and especially I, you didn't mention it in in what you just talked about when you but when you called out Tommy Laren, who for me <laughs> is one of one of the most I like I you know they're they're of course everyone has their person that just triggers them their nemesis there and and I just I find her to be particularly problematic in about a thousand ways um and I I just I love that you you did the same for her and it was you did it in such a respectful way like you're just like here's data here's facts try to have empathy for others given that this is your history yeah um, we should probably tell people what it is that I um, found on Tommy Lauren. Oh, yeah, um, please. I'm, yeah. I'm laughing because um, what you were saying reminds me of, you know, people use that expression, like, you're my person. I feel like Tommy Lauren is my person, but in, like, the total opposite way that that's meant to be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, she's, yeah. She's, she's, the one, she's the one that really sets me off, too. Um, so it started, like, I feel like every single story I, I start, um, it really started accidentally. I, she just so gets under my skin. And uh, one day I was like, huh, you know, she has this German last name. I'm going to work up her tree. I literally did it just to see how many generations back in America she went because, you know, there's, there's sort of no hard and fast rule, but typically when people have like obviously ethnic names, you know, it may have been here for centuries and centuries, but like, you know, generally like a German last name, I suspected that I was going to find an, you know, an immigrant in her tree, like sooner rather than later. But what ended up happening was I worked back her tree um, and uh, I got to her great, great grandfather who was, um, it's been a while since I looked at it, but if I recall, they were, they were Volga Germans. They were, they were ethnic Germans who lived in the Russian empire, I think in um, Ukraine in her family's case. And he came uh, to North Dakota to, to farm as did many of those um, uh, immigrants and took advantage of uh, a homestead act to get free land and you know, started farming this land in North Dakota. But um, I noticed on Ancestry that when I put him in the tree, it, it flagged that there was you know, possible records related to him. Um, and it was in a, in a database on Ancestry where there's um, like correspondence for the person in the, for in the USCIS archives. And it doesn't necessarily mean anything you know, nefarious. It typically just means that there was some sort of administrative glitch for which they would have had to you know, correspond with the department and all those letters are saved. And often there's valuable information in there for people who are trying to find out more. So I thought, oh, good, you know, good. There'll be there'll be more information about his citizenship status. But when I opened it, he was in a file called prosecutions, and it said right there on the card he was prosecuted for forging his naturalization papers. And I just like, I just thought, no, like the the woman who is out there on Fox News every day saying that if you know if you're not here legally, bye bye. <laughs> and I thought this cannot be like this is just insane and sure enough you know I, I i i like to joke it's the best 20 dollars i've ever spent i got a copy um from the national archives 
of the federal grand jury indictment against Tommy Lawrence, great-great-grandfather, Constantine Dietrich from 1917 um, for forging his naturalization papers. And um, I've also since done research and I don't have the statistic right in front of me, but um, those sorts of prosecutions were exceedingly rare, which suggests that there really needed to be a preponderance of evidence for them to, to go forward with really criminally prosecuting people over naturalization proceedings. In his case, what he was charged with doing um, was so banal and silly, but um, once you declared your intention to become a citizen, you had a certain number of years that had to, um, uh, you had to finalize the, the petition for naturalization within a certain number of years. And it appeared that he let too much time go by so what he was accused of doing was using an eraser and trying to change the date of his declaration so that he wouldn't have to start the clock all over again. Um, he was actually acquitted by the trial jury. Um, fair is fair. Um, but still, the fact that, you know, he had been in very, very serious legal trouble, you, you know, it was a federal grand jury indictment. Um, he went to court and everything. I really thought spoke volumes about, you know, I'd like to say people in genealogical glass houses shouldn't throw stones and virtually everybody in America, whether they know it or not, probably lives in a genealogical glass house. Well, and like, what, what have been your experiences in revealing this stuff? Like, you know, we, we don't have a ton of time left, but I would love to hear like, if any memorable experiences of people reacting gracefully or not so much to you, as you said, speaking truth to power. Tommy Warren called me a stalker on Fox News. Um, is that graceful or not? <laughs> wow, that's a badge of honor. I think that's pretty darn cool, actually. Mostly, um, oh, and and Tucker Carlson, uh, whose family tree I called out as well. I believe he called the project. I may be paraphrasing the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Um, wow! So you can decide whether that's graceful or not. Um, you know, I I feel like I I I you probably already know this but we are in an era where people of a certain political persuasion in our country seem completely immune to facts and you know look at the way supporters of the president you know are hanging on for dear life and no matter what he does or says or what receipts you have or you know it doesn't change them. So I, I, I have pessimistically decided that I don't think I'm really going to win over um, any of the targets, but I'm told repeatedly that it is important to just keep putting the truth out there. And so many people in America have these incredibly mythological, myth, Mythologized, there you go. Sorry, it's late in the day. Um, mythologized notions of their ancestors as yeah. these perfect, you know, people who never did anything wrong. And like, as a genealogist, I know, you know, I spend all day unpacking family myth and, you know, showing what the document trail 
really says. Um, and I also think it would be remiss not to talk about this in the context of race and bigotry because that is a huge piece of what's going on. You'll always notice that a lot of these people will lionize their white European ancestors for being plucky and ingenious for skirting the rules. You know, oh, my grandpa stowed away and you know, isn't that great? But they will turn around and look at, you know, uh, Latin American immigrants or, uh, you know, for, for African immigrants doing the same exact thing and skirting the rules. And suddenly that's terrible. And, you know, they should have their children taken away from them. It's just, it's preposterously um, uh, hypocritical. And it's, it's, it's based in racism. There's no other way to explain it. Because what I like to say is, you know, it's really not the process that you are objecting to, because if your family got here the same exact way, you can't denigrate the process. It's really the people, you know, it's, it's, you're not objecting to illegal immigration. You're, you're objecting to, you know, brown and black people coming to America because that's largely what most of most contemporary immigrants are. Um, so that's a big piece of it. And like, how do you decide who you're going after? Because like, you know, I know that you're, I don't want to say targets, but your um, clients, some of them who don't wish to be clients, you know, include Kanye West and, you know, all sorts of people that are not just politicians, right? Is it sort of like anybody who says something racist or like anti-immigrant right. then you're going to like perk your ears up and you're going to take a look is that kind of how you operate yeah i should also give a shout out kanye specifically i did not do that was done by megan spolniak um who's another okay. wonderful genealogist who has done um a ton of the the heavy lifting for resistance genealogy like i sort of started it and created it and got it going um but if you look on our website resistancegenealogy.com um megan has done a lot of um high profile people but yeah I mean you know it's funny like sometimes I'll wake up and you know see that I've gotten a million Twitter mentions because somebody has done something and everybody is asking me to do their tree um and then of course the running joke these past you know uh uh two years is people are always like if I say something really bigoted will you please do my tree like they you know people <laughs> think there's like they can back ass into it you know if they, if they piss me off I'll, I'll do their tree but, yeah I mean we're just generally looking for, um, you know, I, and I also want to make clear, this project is not about shaming anybody or, you know, airing anybody's uh, dirty laundry. It's, it's using the historical record to just insist on the reality of the American immigrant story. And it's begging for empathy because, and another really important um, part of this is that the same antipathy that these people have in you know 2015, 2018, 2020 for, for immigrants, the very same things were said about their ancestors. And it wasn't true then, and it's not true now. It is easy for Tommy Lauren to feel like, you know, she was, you know, I don't know, born from the head of Zeus and landed in 20th century America. 
But no, I mean, people look down upon immigrants like her, her, her great, great grandparents too. People like Ken Cuccinelli, you know, he, he, I, I pulled out uh, editorials from the Jersey City newspaper the very year that his great grandparents came talking about how nobody wants any more Italians. Um, you know, there's, there's too many of them already and they should, you know, just stay home. And, you know, we're the, the, the country, you know, Ken Cuccinelli is a productive member of society, I think, you know, he's a, he's a lawyer. He was the attorney general of Virginia. He has scaled to great heights in, in, you know, the American success story. What if we had believed those people that his, you know, poor and illiterate great grandparents weren't worthy and we're doing the exact same thing. It's the oldest story in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So what's, what else are you planning with resistance genealogy with the project? Are you like, is, are you doing, a, is there a book or is there some more you're writing or is keeping going just, um, you know, using your skills this way? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to write a book. I've had a, a people sort of sniff around about a book, but to be honest, I don't know what the book is. Um, maybe yeah. it's still coming. I mean, I don't think it's a book of, you know, Tommy Lauren's family tree. Um, although I will say, I forgot to mention, one of my favorite things that have come out of all of this is these um, two women, um, one of them lived in New Jersey, I think, but they had a connection to Iowa. They were so intrigued by the story of Steve King's um, uh, ancestors that they wrote a play. They got in touch with me and said, we want to write a one act play about Steve King's family tree. And um, can you help us, you know, like flesh out the tree so we have all the facts right? And if you go on YouTube and you search like Steve King's ancestors, you can watch this absolutely delightful 20 minute one act play. Um, That's awesome. So, so I don't think I'm going to write a play um, or, you know, a, a resistance genealogy, the musical. Um, I don't know. Um, I just sort of keep going. And um, maybe it was implicit in what we were talking about earlier, but when I was sort of thrust into the spotlight, although I hadn't planned on it, um, as a genealogist, suddenly I had tons and tons of people, you know, wanting to hire me as a genealogist. So I now do take a lot of clients um, and, you know, help people solve family mysteries, both on paper and I do a lot of DNA work. Um, so I, right now I'm just, you know, and so cool. <laughs> given, given the fact that we're all stuck in our houses, it's actually pretty great because I can continue to do that. No problem. So right now that's the plan. Although, you know, I, I'd love to write a book. Um, I'm still not exactly sure what that book is. What, well, what's so great about this story in addition to everything else you've talked about is that like the, the sort of purity of your passion and like you didn't, you just knew you were drawn to this and you just kept at it and sort of the kind of application of it revealed itself later, but it began with like something very pure and just almost, almost like gut level is what it sounds like. Totally. And I just, I, I, maybe I didn't quite articulate this strongly enough, but like when all these people were out there, you know, hammering on immigrants and, you know, talking badly about immigrants. I, I, I feel like a lot of us in the genealogical community were just like, you know, banging our heads on the desk because you just, you can't, 
like, I was just like, that is insane. You're lying. Like mm-hmm. so many people came here illegally and so many people had, had irregularities in their naturalizations and immigrants have always been looked down upon. And this is like the oldest, you know, I just, it just seemed so obvious that, you know, and like that I spoke from this place of passion because I was just gobsmacked. Like, it just me, I was like, you are just flat out lying. And I will show you that because this is what I do all day. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll also say, um, given um, present company, that it was incredibly personally satisfying to me that this all happened literally the year that I turned 50. And I was just like, it might've taken a while, but I finally found like a, where a place where I could have some power and authority in the world. And it happened the year that I turned 50. And I was just like, whew, yeah. Like you don't, you don't hear those stories very often. So that was actually really satisfying. Totally inspiring. Yeah. 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 So does that mean that might happen for us too? I just feel I have less <laughs> as the years go on. But anyway, I think that's another story for another time. We want people who are listening to know that they can find out about the project at resistancegenealogy.com. And there's a whole bunch of great stuff there. And that's also the way that you can contact Jennifer if you want to. Before we get out of here today, we want to thank the wine source on Elm Avenue in Hamden, which is getting many people through the pandemic with their tasty vittles and beverages. And we want to thank Maureen Harvey, who uh, produces the podcast and keeps us sounding good. And we also want to let you know that on September 22nd at 7 p.m., we are going to be doing our first soup show of this fall season it will be virtual you can find out about it at soupstorytelling.com but it's a show called of substance stories about our complicated and contradictory relationships with drugs and alcohol it's a show about the thrills of substance use um and also the risks of substance abuse um which feels pretty relevant given the pandemic so thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us today. Yeah. It's such a cool story. The, You're a hero. The one you You're told a badass in, hero. Yeah, the story you told in 2015 <laughs> and the story as it's unfolding now of your own work is just really cool and really inspiring. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, guys. So thanks, everybody, for joining us for the podcast. See you back here soon. Stay safe. The summer-